The year was 1976. The hour, 3.42 a.m. The place, Tangshan, China. And in this year, at this hour, and in this place, one of the worst earthquakes in history struck on July 28th. Next Sunday marks the anniversary of an earthquake that made a sleeping city collapse. The quake left billions and billions of dollars of damage in its wake, and that's partly because the city of Tangshan was in a region with a very low risk of earthquakes. The people of this city had good reason to not expect this disaster, so their buildings were not earthquake-proof. But low risk doesn't mean no risk. So when the earth quaked, those buildings, which people relied on for refuge and safety, were tested. And though the earthquake only lasted 10 seconds, everything crumbled. Can you imagine your house falling in on you in the middle of the night and being trapped under it. I bet many people, when that earthquake hit, they wondered, how can we escape? Friends, when tragedy strikes, not only is what we trust in revealed, it's tested. And if what we rely on doesn't pass the test of tragedy, the results can be fatal. Sadly, this earthquake in China killed over 240,000 people, making it the deadliest earthquake of the 20th century. And yet the people of Tangshan aren't the only ones who've had their hopes tested. The people the prophet Isaiah spoke to did as well. What would they learn from their troubles and the troubles of others? What should we learn? Turn to Isaiah chapter 20. It's on page 582 of the Red Bibles around you. Page 582. We're walking through the book of Isaiah in this short summer series. Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century B.C., When I say Isaiah was a prophet, I mean that he was God's servant who served as God's mouthpiece. So chapter 20 says, chapter 20, verse 2 says, at that time the Lord spoke by or through Isaiah. And jump down to verse 3 where the Lord calls Isaiah his servant. As my servant Isaiah, he says. So as God's servant who was God's mouthpiece, Isaiah would deliver God's word to God's people, specifically those who lived in the kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah's message for Judah was that God was going to judge his people for their sins. Sin is rebellion against God. It's our fallen human nature. Sin is doing what we want instead of what God wants. All people, including you and me, sin which means sin is universal. And since sin is universal, God's judgment is too. 
So God would not only judge his people for their sins, but he would also judge the nation of the world for their sins. So in Isaiah last week, we saw God would judge the nation of Egypt. And yet, we also saw that he would send them a savior who would deliver them. But before that deliverance, Isaiah would deliver another harrowing message about the people of Egypt to the people of Judah. And as we turn to it, let me say, if this is your first time at church, it is great to have you today. You're always welcome to come hear the Bible taught here. And I'll be at that door afterward if you want to come and talk about it more. I'd love to talk to you. As we read Isaiah 20, some details might strike you as graphic. And you might wonder, what in the world is going on? And I just want you to know that the people who gather here every week to hear the Bible preach will be wondering the same thing. And I'll do my best to explain. What might help is a short preview and summary. Think of this as a movie trailer. In this passage, what we'll see is a conquering of a city and how God uses it to teach his people to trust in him. Let's hear how Isaiah tells it. Chapter 20, starting in verse 1, hear now the word of God. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we... How shall we escape? Last week in Isaiah 19, we talked about the future. As we look to the events, Isaiah said, we're coming. In Isaiah 20, we leave the future and we come to Isaiah's present day. And so chapter 20, while it certainly has prophecy, it feels more like a straightforward narrative. And chapter 20 is a little passage that contains a lot of history. And this morning, we'll break this history down into two scenes, and these will be our points for this morning. And then the first scene, we'll see the sign of the servant, the sign of the servant. That's scene one, and it'll cover verses one to four. Scene one, 
the sign of the servant. We'll cover verses 1 to 4. And then our second scene, we'll hear the cry of the hopeless. The cry of the hopeless. That scene will cover verses 5 to 6. Scene 2, the cry of the hopeless, will cover verses 5 to 6. And my prayer is that as we study these scenes, we would trust in the one who both inflicts shame and lifts shame. Scene number one, the sign of the servant. Chapter 20 begins with the context or the background to what's going on. Verse one is like that slide that pops up at the beginning of a movie and has a couple sentences that set the stage for what's about to be shown. And so verse one says, in the year that the commander in chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. Historical records date the year verse 1 speaks of to 712 B.C. It's not clear who this commander-in-chief is, which is fine because the point is who sends him. Look again at verse 1 where we meet Sargon, the king of Assyria. Assyria was a nation with great power at the time, and it was one that Ashdod had revolted against. Ashdod was a city located near the Mediterranean Sea, and it was one of the five major cities of Philistia, the land of the Philistines, so those people who historically taunted God's people. Think of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. Or before Goliath, we can think of when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 5. They brought it to Ashdod and put it next to their idol to show that he was greater than the Lord. The Lord showed that wasn't the case by conquering the Philistines through David, and he made a mess of the Philistines when they took the ark. And Isaiah 20 shows us that God is still superior because while Ashdod crumbles, the Lord's purposes remain. And with the backdrop set, the scene opens with the Lord speaking. And what does he say? Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. Why on earth is God telling Isaiah to take off his clothes? Verse 3. Then the Lord said, As my servant has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and exiles. Ah, okay. So the Lord is using Isaiah as a picture in miniature of what could happen, of what would happen to his enemies who he's judging. And the more familiar you are with the prophets, the more you know that at times the Lord does this with his prophets. He doesn't simply give them a message. He uses them as the message. They embody or act out their message. So you can read Jeremiah 13 and see this in Jeremiah's ministry. Or see Ezekiel 3, where the Lord uses Ezekiel as a picture. Just as he would use Isaiah, verse 3 says, as a sign and portent. A portent is an omen, a foreboding symbol that promises calamity. And this calamity would be promised for Egypt and Cush. Cush was an area of land south to the south of Egypt that was a part of their dynasty and rule. 
Now, why does the Lord have this sign against Egypt and Cush when we were just talking about Ashdod and Assyria back in verse 1? Well, historically, Ashdod had relied on Egypt for defense against Assyria. But Egypt defaulted on their deal because they were worried about Assyria attacking them. So Egypt straight up betrayed the people of Ashdod, which should have shown God's people that Egypt was not to be trusted. So if you're here and you feel betrayed by someone, listen carefully. Because God's people were tempted to trust in Egypt, a nation that betrayed other nations. You see, Assyria had also threatened God's people, and so they were also tempted to look to Egypt for protection instead of looking to the Lord. Friends, a lesson we'll see today, we'll see today is that while it's okay to place your trust in people, it's not okay to place all your trust in people. If you're looking to summarize this passage in three words, here it is. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And the Lord would use Isaiah as a sign to his people to say, you know, Egypt, the ones you're trusting in, your would-be heroes who just flaked on another nation, yeah, as I'm going, they will go. And how will they go? As shamed captives and exiles. And under whose leadership will they go? The king of Assyria, verse 4. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old. It seems this whole society is captured and led away. And verse 4 goes on to describe these captives' nakedness. So just as Isaiah goes naked and barefoot in verse 2, these captives and exiles go naked and barefoot in verse 4. And friends, I know hearing about this nakedness is awkward, and I think that's the point. So after I was voluntold by Pastor Mark that I would be preaching on this passage, I did think, cool, you get to go on vacation and I get to preach on the buttocks. I mean, you can imagine coming up with the sermon title was interesting. <laughs> but once the child in me stopped giggling and complaining about the passage, I remembered that this is God's word. And I declare this morning that it is a privilege to preach it and hear it today. After all, this passage is so striking. Let's just walk through the verses of this first scene again and meditate on them. So in verse 1, we're told what's going on in history. And in verse 2, the Lord's word breaks in. That's why there's that dash. Verse 2 says, at that time, the Lord spoke. God isn't removed from history. He's involved in it and sovereign over it. So if you've ever been grieved or anxious by the prospect of war or by things that have been said from the highest office in the land, know that the Lord is not far off, and he is not afraid of any nation. And people from every nation, including you and me, kings and dictators, commanders and chiefs, and common folk, will all stand before God one day and give an account for every careless word we speak. And so the Lord speaks to his servant in verse 2. 
and he gives Isaiah this strange command. So last week we talked about the might of God's wisdom. Wisdom, chapter 19 says, that can confound. This week, we talk about the strangeness of his wisdom. Wisdom that can confuse. But as Isaiah says in chapter 55, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Surely I'm not the only person in this room who has ever thought, God, what you're doing seems strange. What in the world are you doing? Friends, God is doing 10,000 things in our lives, and we can see maybe three of them. And one of those things he's doing here is using his servant for the good of his people. And CHBC, as I think of his people, I think of y'all. And I want to encourage y'all, because so many of you trust God even when you don't always understand God. Maybe for you it's a members meeting where you hear hard news about something in the life of our church and you're like, what is God doing? And yet you keep trusting God. You keep showing up to members meetings like we'll have tonight. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm not saying people here don't think critically and just have blind faith. No, I'm saying the Christians here, like all faithful Christians around the world, walk by faith and trusting in the promises of God as given to us in his word, despite the fact that finite people will never fully understand the infinite, the infinite God. And yet we understand all we need in order to serve him. After all, I love the servant Isaiah's response. Did you see this? His quick obedience. In verse 2, the Lord gives him the strange command. Look with me at verse 2, where the Lord tells Isaiah to loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And then at the end of verse 2, it says, And he, Isaiah, did so. I wonder if your life could be characterized this past week by quick obedience to God's word. No kicking and screaming like a toddler. No bartering with the Lord like, Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. None of that conditional obedience, which is really no obedience at all. No, just the Lord saying and the servant obeying. The Lord saying and the servant obeying. And as we think of the Lord speaking to his servant, telling him to take off the sandals from his feet as he prepares to give him a message about Egypt, it does make me think of the Lord speaking to Moses in Exodus 3. That's when the Lord revealed himself as the Lord in all caps. So in verse 2, you see Lord in all caps. That's not a typo. Those caps refer to the name Yahweh, The God who has made a covenant, a unique bond and promise with his people. And as Yahweh spoke to his servant Moses, he speaks to Isaiah. And yet Isaiah gets a very different assignment. God would have Moses prophetically speak of Israel being carried out of Egypt in glory. Yet God would have Isaiah prophetically speak of Egypt being carried out of Egypt in shame. Oh, beloved, Isaiah 20 has rich 
parallels and images. And they should remind us that God isn't ashamed of giving us his word. So we shouldn't be ashamed of hearing it. The image of being naked and barefoot in verses 3 and 4 isn't pretty. And neither is our sin. And if we sit uncomfortable with the details here, imagine how we would have felt if we were at the crucifixion of Christ. You know Jesus was stripped, right? Before they put a scarlet robe on him to mock him, the whole battalion of soldiers, Matthew 27, 28 says, stripped Jesus. Beloved, the Bible uses physical exposure, nakedness, as a picture of shame in this fallen world. So before Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 2 says they were naked and unashamed. After they sinned, Genesis 3 says they hide from God. He asks where they are, and Adam, like an embarrassed child, comes out and says to God, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. So remember last week, talking about fearing the Lord, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. Friends, nakedness now pictures our spiritual shame as we consider as we stand condemned under God's judgment, as we stand exposed before a holy God who knows and sees all the wrong we've done. That's why we can praise God for this text. God means what he says here, and he means it for our good. He's warning us of sin That's partly why in verse 3, God gives Isaiah as a message to his people, as a sign, verse 3 says. It was a sign against Egypt, but for Judah, his people. And the purposes of signs are to inform and often to warn. And so Isaiah warns about sin and the place it leads. Did you see in verse 4 how those being judged are led away, presumably to a terrible place? Verse 4, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles. Friends, sin leads to bad places, to death. And if we never turn from our sins, we will be led to the worst place, hell. So if you're here and you do not trust in Jesus... Know that if you don't turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, your sins are leading you to a place far worse than the kingdom of Assyria. Verse 4 says those being led to Assyria's kingdom include the young and old. Citing both ends of the spectrum, young and old, is often a way of saying young, old, and everyone in between. And yet it's striking to me that the young and the old, some of the most vulnerable of society, are a part of this judgment. Of course, all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and will be judged. 
But it's interesting to note here that it seems as one member of this society bears shame, so does the whole society. It's a reminder that while we're not guilty of the sins of others, sometimes we bear the shame of the sins of others. So we're ashamed not because of what we've done, but because of what someone else has done. You get this, right? Someone in your family does something terrible, and your whole family bears that shame. And shame is what we see in our second scene, the cry of the hopeless. Scene number two, the cry of the hopeless. We're looking at verses five and six, the cry of the hopeless. So the king of Syria leads away the shamed Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, and it's then, verse five says, they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this close land will say in that day, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? In verse 5, the scene shifts. We leave the conference between the Lord and Isaiah and the drama of what Isaiah is doing, and we now see its effect. No longer is the camera on the actors on the stage. No, it now pans toward the audience, the one who, the ones who are seeing what Isaiah is doing, and we see their response to the nakedness of Egypt. And what is their response? Verse 5. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed. Before we keep going, we should clarify who this they is in verse 5, because it's not just the Egyptians and the Cushites who are ashamed. It's all who trusted in these nations, the ones who put their hope in Cush and their boast, their confidence in Egypt. And that could have included Judah, because after Assyria invaded the northern part of God's kingdom, so the northern part of the kingdom was Israel. Assyria invaded it in 722 BC. And after that invasion, Judah, the southern part of the kingdom, would have been tempted to trust in Egypt for protection against Assyria. So even though Egypt formally enslaved God's people, that was 700 years before what we're looking at today. And I love what one of you asked me last week. Like, why would Egypt trust in, why would Israel trust in Egypt given their history? And I'm like, I know, that's a great question. Sin is crazy, isn't it? Which is why Isaiah chapter 31 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Yahweh. Friends, if we look to the world more than we look to God, the result, verse 5, makes clear, is shame. The Bible doesn't wink at the reality of sin and shame. It's honest about the human condition, which makes it so refreshing for people who have tasted disappointment in this world. 
The Bible isn't a heavenly hallmark card or Instagram filter. And while the Bible says wonderful things about the goodness of the world, the Bible is also honest about its brokenness, about our brokenness. And it challenges us to consider our shameful condition. Of course, people don't like shame. That's why often when you confront them about sin, they tell you to stop judging them. But even if you stop confronting them, shame, like a ghost, often keeps haunting us. Maybe our aversion to a theology of nakedness has less to do with cultural norms and more to do with the shame we so desperately and instinctively want to avoid. Friends, what do we do with our shame? This inward sense of humiliation and dismay. Where do you put your shame? This isn't shame from nowhere or no reason. The Lord makes clear in verse 5, look with me. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. We should notice that God teaches his people to not put our hopes in a nation. And as I think about our context, beloved, I think of the election coming in 2020, should the Lord will. It's a ways off, but it'd be good to start doing some spiritual prep work for it now. Start praying for the unity of our congregation during it. Start studying your hopes. Because if you're elated after the election, because your candidate, whoever that may be, wins and you you act like, yes, this is what the world needs. Or if you're completely distraught after the election, either way you're sunk because you've put your hope in an earthly empire. What Cush and Egypt teach is that a nation cannot save. Regardless of who sits in the Oval Office, America is not the savior of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is. And I'm not encouraging escapism from the public square. I'm not saying don't be engaged or don't care. I am glad so many of you do, but I am saying don't be deceived. This is not our home, and if we act as if it is, we'll find ourselves joining in on the cry of verse 6. Look with me. Verse 6, And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? When Egypt would be conquered, in that day, the text says, all who trusted in them would realize the truth that we become like what we trust in. So if Judah's hopes and confidence were in Egypt, Egypt's fate is a preview of their fate. And so they ask the million-dollar question, and we, how shall we escape? Friends, your understanding of Christianity depends in no small part on your answer to that question. 
How shall we escape the judgment of God and the shame we bear? And I want to be clear, though God cares about all shame, the shame we most fundamentally bear in this life is not the shame we feel when we embarrass ourselves by spilling ketchup on our shirt or when we write a bad memo at work. The shame we most fundamentally bear is the shame for our sins against God. He is the object of our sin, the one who our sin is fundamentally against. So what will be your hope when you stand before the judgment seat of God? Your good behavior relative to other people? How will you escape? If you don't know the answer to that question, if you feel hopeless, it's okay, because the end of our text is not the end of the Bible. The Bible later answers the question it raises here. So take hope because the scriptures tell us that another servant of the Lord came, one who was betrayed and yet he wouldn't inflict shame, instead he'd remove it. Jesus, the Word of God, as we read earlier in Revelation 19, took on flesh and stepped into history. And he lived a sinless, shameless life. Because he is merciful, Jesus would lift our shame if we trust him. But Jesus couldn't just lift shame and make it disappear. God is merciful, yes, but he is also just. So someone would have to pay the price for sin. Someone would have to bear our shame. And because he is love, Jesus took our shame upon himself. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross. He bore our shame and the judgment our sins deserve. Our sins led to his nakedness as a suffering servant of the Lord embodied the shame of God's enemies, us. And yet when Jesus hung on the cross, I don't think his followers and family fully understood what he was doing. No, I bet they asked a similar question to the one in verse 6. How shall we escape? We trusted this man, this Messiah, and he's dead now? How shall we escape the oppression of the Roman Empire? Earlier we talked about strange wisdom. They must have been like, God, this? This is the Messiah? What in the world are you doing this? Oh God, what are you doing? And I can't find a better answer to that question than the one John Stott gives. He talks about how any observer of the crucifixion would have been shocked by the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. After all, he says, look at Jesus. Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on a cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails, pinned there and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. 
What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Now, of course, Stott's point isn't that Jesus is still on the cross, but that the power of the cross is unstoppable. What looked like death's victory was God declaring victory over the grave because three days after his crucifixion, Jesus was raised, and he now offers full forgiveness to those who turn from sin and trust him. When we do that, God declares us innocent of all the shameful things we've done, those things you don't feel that bad about and those things you can't stop thinking about. So if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, do that today. He will cover your unrighteousness by clothing you in his righteousness. Oh, if you thought that this passage today was a scandal, let me tell you something even more scandalous. God sees naked, shamed sinners and loves them. So he covers them. And the Bible tells this story from front to end. So earlier we talked about Adam and Eve's nakedness. And if you know the story, they tried to cover themselves up, which is such a picture of our pathetic attempts to try and use the good things we do to cover up our unrighteousness. But God comes to Adam and Eve, and he provides them with cover. The Passover, which took place in Egypt, was the story of God covering his people so that they would escape his judgment. The prodigal son, do you remember, came in his filth to his father and was given, Luke 15 says, the best robe. Brothers and sisters, if we run from a theology of nakedness, we rob ourselves of the joy that a theology of covering can give. And Christian, that joy isn't just joy for the, for the day we first became Christians. The gospel is still good news for us today. And I say that because some of us still struggle to believe God has fully forgiven us. Brother, sister, I wonder if you go throughout your days carrying a low level of guilt. I wonder if you know, you know that you've been forgiven, but you still feel like God is still disappointed with you. And he's just waiting to drop the hammer on you. So you continually beat yourself up for things you've done. Oh, beloved, when we do that, we're acting as if Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough. And the good news is that it was, that it is. Of course, if you could go back in time, you wouldn't do that thing you're still ashamed you did. But time travel isn't an option. You did do that thing you regret. 
But the good news is, Christ finished it. It is finished, he said on the cross. And I know it's hard sometimes to live as if that's true. After all, there may be hard consequences for shameful things we've done. Part of that may be a sense of shame we wrestle with. And to make matters even more tricky, we might feel ashamed for things we shouldn't feel ashamed of. So what should we do when our hearts condemn us? Well, we can educate our conscience, and you can check out uh, the book Conscience by Andy Nacelli. It's on the bookstall, at least I hope it is. But our hope isn't ultimately what we can do. Our hope is God. When you feel condemned, look to him. 1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So I understand that you may feel a sense of shame in life. But if you're in Christ, that sense has an expiration date on it. And if you're in Christ, what matters most is not the experience of your feelings, significant though they are. But what matters most is not the experience of your feelings, the subjective sense, but the fact that God has forgiven you, the object reality that you've been pardoned. Imagine a person who has committed horrific crimes and is declared innocent in court. When they walk out of the courtroom, it'll likely take some time for their feelings to catch up to their reality, that they're free. And the same is true for cosmic criminals who were exposed before God and covered by Christ and declared innocent. Amen. Friends, here's a simple fact many Christians struggle to believe. God loves you. You're covered in the righteousness of his son. And when he looks at you, it's as if he's looking at his son and he says, this is my son my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Which means, brothers and sisters, despair, how our passage ends, is no longer the period at the end of our lives. It is a comma. Because there is more of the story to tell. So maybe you're here and you like taking the cynical outlook on things. Like you're that person in the group of friends you have. Let me give you my gentle, measured, pastoral counsel. Stop it. Please, stop it. Though it may sound erudite and real, cynicism is unbecoming of Christians. It's not a posture from which we should operate because defeat is not the end of the story. Victory is. Disappointments don't define us. They cause us to flee to the one who does. Friends, the people of Isaiah 20 realized that they didn't have the resources in of themselves to deliver themselves. And that's what our disappointments are designed to do, to cause us to look upward, outward, not inward. In our passage, we see a defeat. Maybe you feel defeated, de disappointed. If you do, let your troubles teach you. Don't run from them. 
Study them, because as he did with Judah, God uses our disappointments to release our grips on idols. Disappointments are like water thrown on us as we're sleeping, and they should cause us to wake up and hope in God, who will at times, in his strange wisdom, leave us with nothing, so we can realize that his grace is everything we need. Isn't that what he's done in Isaiah 20? Didn't his people see how the mighty had fallen? How all that glittered was not gold? How all that glittered was not godly? Judah trusted Egypt, their horses and chariots. But brothers and sisters, as the psalmist writes, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we Trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. He is our refuge, our mighty fortress, as we sang earlier. So earlier I asked, what do you do with your shame? Christian, our hope is that Christ has already dealt with it. And so we can hand any shame we further incur to him. And if we trust him, we will become like what we trust in, glorious. This is the great exchange of the gospel, the offer God makes us. He says, I will take your shame, and in exchange, I will give you my glory. I will take your embarrassment, and in exchange, I will give you my joy. I will take your exposure and give you my covering. I will take your rags and in exchange give you my robes. And boy, does he give us robes. What does Revelation 7, 9 say? After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Last week, we talked about the great diversity there will be when people from every nation and tribe are gathered. And though there's much to praise God for about that, on that day, greater than our diversity will be our unity. We'll have different voices in the choir, but the same robe. Christ righteousness, covering us all. That's how we'll escape. Let's pray. Father, we cry out to you, but we cry as those who have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may we continually look to his righteousness And when he returns, would we be found to be standing on nothing but him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.